I have traveled all over the world and whether I'm in a refugee camp or in South Africa or Bangladesh, children are mesmerized by these characters. And I think it's true, the Muppets have universal appeal. You know, less than 3% of all humanitarian aid is invested in education. And yet we absolutely know that reaching children in those critical early years is the most important thing we can do to put them on a trajectory for success, particularly children who've experienced trauma. Welcome to Straight Talk, a podcast about big ideas featuring candid discussions with some of the world's foremost thinkers and doers. I'm Hank Paulson, chairman of the Paulson Institute. Today I'm speaking with Sherry Weston. Sherry was recently named as president of Sesame Workshop, the nonprofit educational organization behind Sesame Street. She previously served as president of social impact and philanthropy for Sesame Workshop, where she has been on the cutting edge of innovative use of educational media to help disadvantaged populations in the United States and abroad. Sherry has held leadership positions in media, nonprofits, and public service. She was assistant to the President for Public Liaison and Intergovernmental Affairs for President George H.W. Bush, Assistant Secretary for Public Affairs at the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development, and held senior positions with the ABC Television Network and U.S. News and World Report. Sherry, welcome to the podcast. I've really enjoyed our work together and admire the impact you're having all around the world. So I'm really looking forward to today's discussion. Let's start with your early life. What was it like growing up in Virginia? Well, I'm, first of all, thank you so much for having me. I'm so honored to be able to be with you, Hank, and I so appreciate it. But I, um, growing up in Virginia, you know, I, yeah, I had one of those childhoods that you probably took for granted at the time, but you look back on it and you realize how blessed you were. My parents were young. They were very outgoing. My father was your height, Hank. Um, so to me, he was larger than life. He was a great storyteller. He was... Um, had a great sense of humor. My mother was sort of everybody's favorite mom. So our house was always filled with friends and neighbors. And, you know, I just remember growing up surrounded by children, animals. I think perhaps my interest in children started very early. I remember my mom let me create something called creative class where I literally had all the younger neighborhood children come to our house. It, it turned into sort of a summer camp, if you will. And I had it every summer and eventually the other parents paid me to have their children. So um, I had a, you know, a great time growing up and um, I went to University of Virginia as well and actually went to Virginia thinking I would study education or special ed in particular. Now, interesting because so often you see these seeds of a career, you know, manifesting themselves very early on. And the interest in kids to me is not surprising, but you're also clearly mission driven. You know, for some time that mission, it, it's been kids, but communications with a public purpose. Was there something else in your childhood that sparked that interest or, or were you sort of always a driven, ambitious person? 
you know, I don't know when I reflect, it's true. When I went to UVA, in spite of the fact that I was interested in education, I remember my first year, I took courses at the McIntyre School of Commerce, which is very good undergraduate business department. And I loved marketing. So I ended up pivoting. I didn't major in education and there was no, this is a while ago. So there was no communication school. Of course they have that today, but they didn't then. So I remember creating a special major and asking for permission. And they allowed me to create a major that was called communications. And so I, I took the marketing courses, but I was not a business school major. I still took speech rhetoric and English courses and they allowed me to do it as long as I would get an internship somewhere. Could I find a way to show how this all works together? And I found a local PR firm in Charlottesville. They hired me to be an intern and undergraduate. And then in fact, they offered me a job after college, which is what took me to Washington DC. So I think I was interested in communications. You know, I don't, I don't know about public service. I always worked with children. I always mentored through high school. I taught horseback riding. I mean, I was, you know, that interest in children was always there, but I really sparked an interest in communications in college. And then when I ended up in Washington, of course, when you're right out of school, it's all that Washington was that was so exciting. And that was communications and media. It was public service, government, politics. To me, that's fascinating because, you know, I'm always a little bit suspicious of someone that says from the time they're five, they know what they want to do. But you see how careers evolve. And there's not necessarily a grand plan, but you were very innovative and entrepreneurial as you made your way before school and through school, and then you got into public service. So what was it like working with President Bush, Bush 41? Well, you know, that was a tremendous privilege. When I came to Washington and I started to do other things, I ended up working, I, I actually have reflected on this a bit, and one of my first jobs in government was for Jack Kemp, who was Secretary of Housing and Urban Development at the time. And he really was the first person that showed me what public service could do in terms of systemic problems. You know, rather than tutoring one-on-one -on -one with the child and making a difference, what you could do in a macro sense. And when I had the opportunity to serve 41, President George Herbert Walker Bush, which was, a, again, such an enormous honor, I was in somewhat of a communications role, but I, I came in as assistant secretary for public liaison and intergovernmental affairs. And I admired him so much for his character and for his sense of public service. I mean, he, he believed in serving and throughout his career, you see his incredible career from China to CIA to president, vice president, president, but I learned so much from him. And when I, when I think back, you know, in terms of sort of, takeaways from that time in the White House, I do think one of my biggest takeaways was how important it is to use your capital and the equity that you build to really tackle the tougher problems in terms of public service. And I, to this day, I mean, he was the greatest foreign policy president. I think most people would agree when you look at how he managed the end of the Cold War, the Gulf War. But I do think if he had been able to use that popularity and equity to address more of the domestic issues, I believe he might've been reelected. Yeah, it was a tragedy. He was a one-term president. And what really did him in was, I think, doing something great, working with Newt Gingrich to balanced the budget, and there was an increase in taxes. And that did him in. But the interesting thing, I could see why you were attracted to him. I, I actually knew him before I knew his son, who I worked for, George Bush 43. 
because I went fishing with him a number of times at Kenny Bunk Park. And so, such a people person through and through. I mean, he sounds a little bit like your father in terms of <laughs> wanting a storyteller and wanting to communicate, really wanting to communicate with people. And the other thing I would just tell you, that was, it's funny your takeaway, because that was my takeaway also from Washington. I have no respect for anybody in a senior leadership position there that just doesn't go full speed because there's so much that can be done. Nothing that's easy, nothing that's easy, but there's so much that can be done. Well, it's, you know, it's interesting that you say this, Hank, because I will say you, you've served in tremendous capacity, but the other takeaway I have from the White House is I don't care who's in, what administration, what political party, once you've served at that rank with that opportunity, you are so empathetic to others who are there. Oh. Whether it's a Democrat, Republican, you understand what it's like to be there in the best of times and in the most challenging times. Yeah, boy, boy, I tell you, I empathize. Yeah. Everybody that's being attacked. And you realize that when people disagree with you often in Washington and they disagree with your policy, they go after you personally. And so you just can't personalize it. And you, you realize no one goes there trying to do a bad job. Right. And there's nothing that's easy there. And so if it was easy, you know, it would have been done. So so you then made the move from Pennsylvania Avenue to Sesame Street. <laughs> <laughs> Talk about that and, and the progression there. Well, I, you know, there were a few steps in between. I actually went back to ABC when I left the White House. And I so I spent time at U.S. News Report, uh, ABC News, ABC Network. And I was at ABC Network when Disney bought Cap Cities. At the same time, I adopted a little girl from China at four and a half months of age. And so I honestly think being a new mother, having this young child, I started to develop more of an interest in children's media. And for the first time, I was focused on the importance of quality children's programming, focused on the need for quality educational media. And I was just very, very fortunate because Joan Gans Cooney, who was the creator of Sesame Street, she founded Children's Television Workshop, which is now called Sesame Workshop. She asked me if, if I would ever consider coming to work at Sesame. And it just felt like the perfect place. You know, it combined my interest in media, my interest in children, my role as a new mom. And honestly, as a global nonprofit organization, it really brought back all of my public policy experience and sense of public service. So it's, you know, I've been there ever since. It's an amazing organization, but I want you to tell our listeners a little bit about it because of course, everybody's familiar with Sesame Street, right? At least my generation, we grew up with Big Bird and Elmo, but you know, I hadn't been fully aware until I, did some work with you about the breadth and the depth of Sesame Workshops, everything they do in the nonprofit world, you know, so there's a lot going on. So how do you view the mission, the social impact of this organization? Well, you're not alone, Hank. Most people think of Sesame Street as the iconic television show in the U.S., and rightly so. It's been around for 51 years now, so enormously impactful and successful. But I think most people don't know the sort of the origins and the fact that Sesame Workshop is a nonprofit organization, always has been. You know, Sesame Street was created during the War on Poverty. It was the 1960s. It was the Lyndon Johnson administration. And with a grant from the Department of Education, the Carnegie Corporation, and Ford Foundation, 
Joan Gans Cooney created Sesame Street and it was an experiment. This was when television did not have lots of children's programming or any educational programming really. And she wrote a thesis, got the funding and created this as an experiment to see if you could use television to teach. And more importantly, she wanted to see if they could reach children who did not have quality formal education in their early years to help level the playing field, to help give children with less advantage the ability to arrive at school ready to learn. Of course, we all know now it was a tremendous success. There've been over a thousand studies on the efficacy of Sesame Street. But one of the stories I love is she said she thought she was creating a quintessential American show. It was a multiracial cast. It was on a stoop in Harlem. And within a year, Mexico, Brazil, and Germany all came forward and said they wanted their own adaptations. They wanted their own Sesame Streets. And that's what started our international work. We're now in 150 countries, but the work that I find the most rewarding and impactful is in many of those countries, we create local versions of Sesame Street. So it's Sesamstrasse in Germany. You know, unique programs, they look like Sesame Street, but they're all local. So it's designed to meet the needs of children in that country, reflecting their culture, their language. Bache Simpson in Afghanistan, Ahlan Simpson in the Middle East, which means welcome sesame, Plaza Sesamo in Latin America. Mm-hmm. So the fact that we were able to use this proven model, but to do so in a way where it's not just exporting the US version of the show. The other thing I'd love to mention is that Joan was also so smart that even though we're a nonprofit organization, even though we need philanthropic support, she was able to license these engaging popular characters to build a revenue stream that would be earned income, unrestricted revenue, if you will, to help support the workshop. So it's why I think people are often confused. They might think we're commercial because they see licensed product or theme park, but all of that makes us a more, I think, sustainable organization. And then, of course, we raise money to do work in the more developing uh, world and, and to target particular needs. You've already essentially answered this next question, but I want to expand on it. <laughs> expand on it a bit because because Sesame Street is multicultural. Okay, it really is. So I have very fond memories of traveling to China with you to roll out, you know, the Paulson Institute's Urban Sustainability Program on Water Conservation. And to me, what hit me was. The smile on children's face, you know, when they saw a big bird, it was amazing. But very importantly, they got the message in a way that was more impactful than our other teaching message. So what is it? You know, you explained it, but what is it about the Sesame language that transcends culture? Well, I have such fond memories of that trip, too. And, and you know, Big Bird is probably one of the few characters that actually towers over you. But when you got to see children delight in those characters, I have traveled all over the world. And whether I'm in a refugee camp or in South Africa or Bangladesh, children are mesmerized by these characters. And I think it's true. The Muppets have universal appeal. And then when we create local indigenous characters, we're helping children identify and see themselves and see storylines that they can relate to. So I think the power of the Muppets is they become powerful role models. And we're able to teach not just letters and numbers, although we do that quite effectively, but to your point, Hank, we were in China 
to teach behavior change. Yeah. Largest, the largest migration from rural to urban, the need for conservation and for children to understand that. And we literally, that program, if you recall, was teaching young children to turn off the tap. And yeah. we have research, we always measure outcomes on anything we do that shows how effective the Muppets can be in teaching water sanitation and hygiene, in changing attitudes and behaviors. And it's really powerful. It's amazing what some children, just a lot of people don't know. When you ask, where does water come from? They'll say the faucet, right? Yeah. <laughs> if they live in a city. So to really teach those, it makes a big difference. And getting to kids is a good way to get to the adults. That's such an important point because so often the children are the catalyst for the change with the entire family. Yeah. We see that again and again. It makes a huge difference and you're on the cutting edge. So I want to talk some more because what's amazed me in the last few years is to see some of the things you've done where it really is a cutting edge of philanthropy, doing innovative things to help some of the most disadvantaged populations around the world. You've done particularly impactful work to help children and families affected by the Syrian and Rohingya refugee crises. Talk about how this work has evolved and what you're learning. I would love to. I mean, it's an initiative we're so very proud of. And, you know, we've had a long history, not only, you know, being in different countries and reflecting cultures and needs, but we look at what are the issues, the pressing issues affecting children. And, and those have changed over time, you know? And so when there are significant events that affect a child's childhood, their ability to learn are creating barriers to their healthy development, we ask ourselves, what can we do? And during the height of the Syrian crisis, you know, there were more people displaced than any other time since World War II, half of whom were children. So we started to think about how can we help in the Middle East? We had done work in Jordan, in Egypt, in Israel, Palestine. So we had done Arabic programming, had partners there, but we realized to really address some of the biggest challenge for refugee children, displaced children, we needed a partner on the ground. So we formed a partnership. I went to David Miliband of the International Rescue Committee, um, the IRC, and we agreed that we'd form a partnership even though we're both nonprofits. And we raised a, enough money to start a pilot in Amman. And soon after we heard about the MacArthur Foundation, Chicago had announced the first ever 100 and Change Award to give a $100 million grant to an organization addressing a pressing issue of our time. So I went back to David Miliband and said, would you join us? Because we think we should apply. And lo and behold, the MacArthur Foundation chose Sesame Workshop and our initiative with the IRC to earn the $100 million over five years. And it allowed us literally to create the largest early childhood intervention in the history of humanitarian response. We're in the third year. And the idea is you think of Sesame, we're creating local content with curriculum, with advisors based on what is most important and what do these children need. And that's the new broadcast, Ahlan Simpson, but it's not just television, it's digital. It's every way we can reach children. Then we create the content with those same characters, with those same engaging storylines children can relate to. And that's curriculum, it's, it's learning activities, it's storybooks. And the IRC has incredible staff on the ground. So they use this content for home visits, for learning centers. And you see the combination of the media and the direct services to reach the most vulnerable children. And we're also investing a significant amount, $15 million in research, because again, we have to prove 
impact, but we also want to share that research with the world. There's a dearth of research on what's most effective for children in crisis settings. So we will literally double the amount of research through Global Ties NYU. And that is a part of what we see as a key deliverable. And I, I will say that another huge goal was to be transformative. You know, less than 3% of all humanitarian aid is invested in education. And yet we absolutely know that reaching children in those critical early years is the most important thing we can do to put them on a trajectory for success, particularly children who've experienced trauma. You can imagine how traumatic displacement is for young children. And we have been thrilled because within one calendar year, the Lego Foundation came forward and invested a second $100 million. And we are deepening our work um, in the Middle East through learning through play. And we have expanded, thanks to Lego, to Bangladesh to address the Rohingya crisis. And our hope is that we are shining a light on the critical need to invest in early education for children in crisis settings, wherever they may be. And boy, I hate to say this, but this looks like you're growing business. Well, um, sadly, this need is not going away. And it, is one, it is one of the most heartbreaking things to witness, because how much of this displacement and migration crisis hurts children and, and, and families. So that's, that's really, really important. And I'd like to talk about another area where you've been involved, which is a pandemic. And I think it's really impressive how quickly you've adapted to your media, really taking your media savvy to create a wealth of content in multiple languages to help those most in need around the world as they deal with this devastating COVID-19 issue. And it's, it's hitting parts of the world really, really hard, harder than even in the United States in terms of the health and the people in the economy. But describe some of the work you're doing here. Well, you're absolutely right, Hank. And I have to say, given the whole history, our origins, Sesame Street created to reach children when they don't have access to formal education with proven impact, the need for Sesame has never been greater. 1.5 billion children out of school without access to learning. And so we have stepped up. Um, you know, as I said, it, it, it really plays to what we're here for and what we're best at. And I think there's such a greater appreciation for the effectiveness of media, it, whether it's digital, it, whether it's high tech, low tech, for us to be able to reach children and families with quality education. But we also pivoted and began immediately creating content that was specifically in response to COVID. And by that, I mean, we have created everything from PSAs about water sanitation, hygiene, washing hands, short form content to help parents and help children. I'm, I'm thrilled to say that those have been distributed in over 100 countries and 39 languages. We've also created resources because we have a long experience of helping address difficult issues from the lens of a child. So these resources are for parents and families to help children cope with the socio-emotional issues that they're facing because of the pandemic. We've done primetime specials, literally had to produce ourselves from home where it looks like a Zoom play date, but we've done that both in the US. We've started partnering with CNN to do town halls to answer children's questions about COVID, about the new normal. And that's ongoing because there, it, it keeps evolving, but there are still 
issues as it evolves, whether it's back to school, whether it's the holidays. And that's something that I think has been very, very helpful. And the last thing I'll mention is that the Lego Foundation, again, was very generous and we were able to create family specials that really model for parents learning through play and opportunities to create learning environment at home when they can't be in school. And those specials are now in 50 countries and 13 languages and, and just hundreds of hours that we're providing to ministries of education around the world. So I'm so grateful that we're in a place where we can still be trying to help during a time like this. Boy, we need it. Now I'm gonna show my bias, but I think it is a travesty that our society is working to keep bars open and, and shutting down elementary schools, you know, and, and, and keeping young kids at home. But I gotta tell you, I'm really pleased that Sesame is doing so much to help. Now I'm gonna to get to a more positive note right now. The <laughs> pandemic you know, has caused many people to develop a greater appreciation of the natural world. You hear it all the time. And you and I share an interest in birding. Tell us about this newfound hobby. Now, I don't think it developed from Big Bird, right? I don't think you were looking at Big Bird with binoculars. <laughs> but tell us about it. <laughs> no, well, I, I, I've become the classic quarantine cliche. Bought a Peloton, a new puppy, and took up birding. So, um, but I, I will tell you, it really was because I was working from home. Being home since March, and we, you know, on our property, we were fortunate. We have a lot of trees, and I've always had a lot of birds. And and this spring in particular, I I was loving the chirping, the bird nest, the, the you know. And I'll be really honest. There is a um, a funny story, but it's true that there's something called a nest. I don't know if you have it, but it's a camera system that you put on the outside of your home and then it's an app and it has a camera that you know you can put at the front door, the back door at, at different instances so you can monitor who comes or um, on the house. It's very helpful since I have teenagers. But anyway, this one nest on the back deck was right above a sconce, like a lantern. And a morning dove had built a nest on that sconce. So I literally, on my phone, on my app, I had a bird's eye view, literally, right <laughs> into that nest. I could see the eggs. One day it's, you know, like one, then I see two. And I was fascinated. I loved checking in on this morning dove and I couldn't wait for them to hatch because I was going to be able to watch the whole thing you know in real time I also noticed that it didn't look like the same bird so I started reading about it and sure enough I didn't know this morning doves take turns the male sits on the nest for half the day or yep. 12 hours and the female takes the night shift literally every day they switch so that sort of piqued my interest I'm not going to tell you the tragic ending of the morning dove story, but it helped me learn about grackles. And this really sort of piqued my interest. So I started reading more about birds. And then my husband, I have a very romantic gift for our anniversary in May. He, uh, no, it's in October, what am I? In October, he gave me Vortex binoculars, which I absolutely love. And now I'm hooked. Yeah, well, it's really been pretty amazing the number of people that I know that I'm a birder, largely through my wife, uh, Wendy. So I have all sorts of people that have recently taken up birding. And the great thing about birding is everywhere in the world you go, you know, there, there are an interesting variety of birds. It's a great way to connect with nature. Now, I want to come back again to children because, you know, we're getting hit with these multiple crises, right? Uh, the racial reckoning, the climate crisis, economic crisis. And of course, you've done so much work, you know, talking to children, relating to children. 
So what have you learned about how children absorb these tough issues in a three-year work at Sesame? And what advice can you give listeners that are looking for better ways to relate to or to talk about these tough issues with their children and their grandchildren? Well, I'll, t- I'll tell you two main things I've learned. Um, one is just how important it is to talk to children. And I think that we make the mistake that we think there are certain issues that are just too tough, that they're either adult issues or grown up issues. When in fact, even at a very young age, in an age appropriate way, talking to children about stressful times, about difficult, challenging issues is so important. And you know, I'll tell you one of my favorite projects, but also when it really hit home to me was about 14 years ago, probably, there was an article on the front page of the New York Times that said there were over 700,000 military families with very young children who were facing deployment and sometimes multiple deployments. And again, as we look at issues where we might be able to help, we decided we should see what we could do. And with everything we do, we started an advisory research, brought together military experts, and we created a program called Talk, Listen, Connect because young children, two, three-year-olds, no one talked to them about why daddy was going away for a long time. And, and in this, there's a video where Elmo's dad goes away. And that was distributed through military one source, millions of copies, and all sorts of materials to help families help young children. And it was so moving and rewarding to travel to military bases and hear the feedback because it became a catalyst. A, children felt like they weren't alone, that Elmo's going through the same thing, and B, it prompted those critical discussions that people tend to avoid because they think they're too young. And that has carried through whether we've done programs around parental addiction, around homelessness, as we talked about, displacement, a pandemic. We create resources and tools to help adults and caregivers address these issues with young children. And they pick up, children pick up on the stress parents are feeling too. People think they may not know, they do, and they need to understand. The other thing I've learned that has been so fascinating throughout my time at Sesame is, you know, Joan had a hunch that the learning would be deeper if a parent or an adult watched with a child. It's why she added Muppets and humor and parodies and celebrities, music. That was her hunch 51 years ago. We now have the neuroscience to prove that the way a child's brain development is through engagement with an adult. And even more so, we know that when a child experiences stress, prolonged exposure to traumatic experiences, it literally inhibits brain development. And what the most important thing is to mitigate that, it's more engagement with a caring adult. So I think what we do by you know, again, fortunately, thanks to Joan's prescience, our content appeals to adults as well as children. So we're often creating content that's not just the tool for the child, but it's the catalyst for that critical engagement between parent and child. You know, you're so, you know, I know you're right. You know much more about it than I do. But the one thing I have seen is that engagement is the most important thing. And if they feel loved, if they feel secure, if you're talking to them about about what's on their mind, it makes all the difference. Now, I'm going to leave. I'm going to take you back to your government days. What advice would you give Joe Biden and his administration on how to better serve the needs of the country's children? You were back in Washington working with them. What would you say? Well, 
without a doubt, I would say that there is no better investment in the future of our country than investing in children. And I would say particularly young children. We know that the return on investment when you reach children in their critical early years is the greatest return. And reaching parents and caregivers, helping them understand that a child learns through play, helping them understand that that engagement is critical for their brain development is so important. And I, I'm sure you're familiar with James Heckman, the, the Nobel Prize winning economist. I think he's University of Chicago too, correct? But you know he's done a lot of research on the fact that if we invest in quality early education, the return on investment is like seven to one in longer term outcomes, not just education, but economic productivity, less crime, longer term health. And so the one thing I would say if I were advising President Biden would be how important it is for us to invest in early childhood education programs. You know, again, you know, I just really agree with you. Uh, the work that uh, Erskine Bowles and I chair in the Aspen Economic Strategy Group. And you know, the work that we've done is just reinforce that point. And I think it's significant when we look at our spending. Some of our spending, federal spending, is really not spending, it's an investment. It should be a capital investment. It, I think it, it is, it, it should, absolutely. And it comes back, it's longer term. Unfortunately, we have a, we have a budget process in Washington and we have a political system that is short-term oriented. But this comes back, it comes back with fewer social programs, higher earnings, taxes, productivity. It is an investment in our future. And you know, I think so much of what we get wrong in this country really are issues about generational equity. You know, we're so geared toward older people and spend so much money you know, without investing into investing in our future. And so and anyway, I really, really appreciate all you're doing. But so this has been fascinating. And I, for one, am so grateful that you are running Sesame Workshop. Thank you so much, Hank. This was such an honor for me to talk to you. And I love having the chance to talk about our work. So thank you so much for inviting me. You have listened to Straight Talk with Hank Paulson, a podcast of the Paulson Institute. To find more episodes from leading thinkers and doers, please visit paulsoninstitute.org backslash straight talk or download on Apple, Google Play, Spotify, and Stitcher. And don't forget to rate and subscribe. Thank you for listening and see you next time.